Tonight's practice is titled, How Knowing Your Buddhist Personality Type Can Help Your Practice. In Buddhist teachings, we often talk about three roots of suffering, uh, greed, aversion, and ignorance or delusion. I'm sure this is not news to you. Also, according to um, the Buddhist commentaries, we're born with a primary tendency towards one of these roots. Obviously, we all work with um, greed. We all work with aversion. We all work with delusion. Um, But there's one often that predominates and that it seems like we come into this world uh, with that one predominating. And um, so these three roots correspond to uh, three basic personality types in Buddhism. And then there's also three evolved types. Um, each type has um, a, a more positive um, manifestation. You may have noticed that those first three aren't exactly <laughs> positive manifestations. So each one has a way that it becomes evolved and, um, and more enlightened. So we talk about... Um, the greed, or sometimes that word greed's too intense for people, so we talk about desire types. Um, and desire types, uh, the more evolved type is faith or devotion. And then we talk about aversive types, and the more evolved uh, presentation is discriminating wisdom. And then we talk, I mean, We used to talk about deluded type, but again, that word's a little too intense for people, so we often use confused type, and um, that that evolves into, well, a lot of places say the speculative type, but I just can't relate to that word as something positive, so another way we could say is it evolves into an equanimous type or um, a non-confused type. And for each one of these um, personality types, there's a spiritual task that we must undertake. And you could say that these um, core personality types are our core challenge, but they're also our doorway to freedom. My core challenge is aversion, and um, I've learned more from aversion than just about anything else in my practice. It's been an important part of my practice and deepening my practice. So talking about these personality types can often be quite entertaining. So, um, and that, that's not a bad thing. You know, a good laugh every once in a while helps us, right? But, but the original reason why these uh, personality types were talked about was um, that it can help us to practice to know which type we are because it can help us to know what kind of environment and what kind of practices are um, most suitable for us. These uh, personality types come from the commentary known as the Vasudhimaga or the Path of Purification written in um, 5 uh, CE, about 800 years after the Buddha. And they were included in this commentary um, as instructions about what kind of environment certain kinds of temperaments should have. They use the word temperament. And what kind of practices would be most helpful. So 
my hope in offering, that's one of my hopes in offering it, is to help us um, understand uh, what's most helpful for our temperament. But another way we can look at this talk is to take um, the advice for each type when we happen to be dealing with that um, that issue, you could say, or that um, those mind states. So that if greed is particularly up for us, um, cravings particularly up for us, then the practice suggestions for um, one of a, a greedy or desire temperament would be appropriate. So that's another way that um, they can be helpful. They can be um, the suggestions for each type can be prescriptions for working with that particular energy. So as I said, it, we, we're, it's often said that we um, major in one of those. Um, occasionally people have a double major <laughs> <laughs> or a major and a minor. Um, uh, my, what I found that's quite interesting, and I think others have found this too, is that when you first come to practice, you spend a lot of time working with your major, right? And then over a number of years, as you learn how to um, work skillfully with that energy, then you go to your secondary one. And for me, for example, my early practice, I swear to God that all I ever worked with was aversion. I don't remember ever working with craving. It was like there was so much aversion. I remember in my first long three-month course, I got, they used to do group interviews in those days. This was 30 years ago. And... Um, I got in. I found out later. I got in a kind of leftover group of um, <laughs> they, 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 the numbers didn't work out for like people with the same kind of practice or something. So I wound up in this group. I remember with this guy who had been practicing a long time. It was my first retreat. So he would come in and he would report um, no sense of the body, just knowing, just note knowing, knowing, spacious, you know. And I would come in and note. Um, Anger and sadness, that's been my practice. And then the next time would be like sadness and anger. And then the next time would be like fear and anger. <laughs> and um, I remember Joseph being uh, the teacher in some of those groups. And he was very kind. He was very helpful. So that was it. You know, my early practice for years and years, it felt like um, lots of aversion. And then, um, yeah, as I started to get somewhat of a grip, you could say, on that, then I started noting, cra noticing craving everywhere. Just wanting, wanting, wanting. And then after a number of years with that, I started to notice the kind of disconnect, which is one of the ways that delusion manifests, a disconnect. Lately, I feel like I'm circling back to version again. So it's like you get to work with all of them. One student, when I um, was going to give this talk, and... Uh, Ohio, when I was teaching there, one student asked me if we were going to take a Buddhist Myers-Briggs, which is a common personality test. And um, yeah, I said it was going to be easier than that. There's a really easy, easy test for which personality type you are. And that's if somebody asks you, like, to do something new, is your first response, yes? Or is your first response, oh, no? <laughs> or is your first response, Hmm, maybe? Hmm. So yes, no, and maybe. That's my, that's my uh, 
quick summary of the three types, yes being the desire types, no being the aversive types, and maybe being the confused types. Or they say if you walk into a room, the um, desire types immediately notice what's nice, what they like. Um, the aversive types immediately notice the problems, the flaws, you know, what needs to be fixed, what doesn't look quite right. And the um, confused types uh, will ask, what am I doing in this room? <laughs> Another easy test, perhaps, of which type you might be is, um, what is what is the one energy that you feel like you just have to get rid of to be okay? Or what's the one kind of mind state that you feel, feel you have to get rid of? Often that's your core challenge. So in my early practice, it was like aversion. I, I just felt like I had to get rid of that. It wasn't acceptable. It wasn't okay. I had to get rid of it. Another reason why I think it's helpful to talk about the personality types is um, it helps us not to take uh, our challenges quite so personally. Again, when I first started practicing and I experienced a lot of aversion, I thought that there was something wrong with me, that I was bad because I felt a lot of anger or fear. And when I first heard about the personality types, it really helped free up a lot of judgment in my mind. I was like, oh, okay, so that's what I came in with. That's what I have to work with. Um, It didn't feel so personal, like my personal problem. Obviously, I still have to deal with it, but um, yeah, the extra layer of judgment of ourselves. So if you get nothing else from this talk, it would be great if you took away this deeper sense that you're not personally flawed because you're dealing with one of these three challenges. So the idea isn't, um, as it might be in psychology, the idea isn't to kind of strengthen our sense of self around these, to become um, our personality type, to identify with it like that. It's actually more the opposite. It's more like, a, you could say, an anatta teaching, uh, not self-teaching. It's like not taking it so personally, not being um, attached to it either as who you are or as your problem, your big problem, your big flaw. I also want to say don't worry about remembering every detail of your type or every detail of what I say tonight because it's kind of a lot of information. Um, Just see if anything helpful comes up for you. And if so, take that. And uh, later, this will be on Dharma Seed. If you're, you know, you want to review it when you leave here, you'll be able to. So, don't worry about too much getting all the details. So, I thought I might start with the one that I know best: aversion, the aversive types. So, the aversive types—they have predominant mind states, or we have predominant mind states of anger, judgment, fear aversion, not wanting, ill will, control. Aversive types tend to be critical and judgmental, and they're hard on others. They expect um, perfection from others. 
their first reaction when there's something new it will tend to be no or to immediately see the flaws and the drawbacks about why something won't work or why something isn't a good idea. So they'll look for flaws and they tend to be skeptical. They tend to spend a lot of time trying to avoid unpleasantness, to try to avoid the triggers that um, cause them unpleasantness or the triggers of things that are unpleasant. So for each one, I thought I'd give a little description of how this meditator may act at IMS. (laughs) Yes, this is where it gets entertaining (laughs) as we recognize ourselves. (laughs) So the aversive type might come in the hall in a rush. They know which places in the hall to avoid. For example, which other meditators they do not want to sit around. They notice that none of the cushions, they can't find a cushion that really feels very good. They notice that there's this new irritating sound in the hall. So they kind of throw the cushion down roughly and they sit very rigidly. They walk with hard steps. They come in for a Dharma talk and they're unhappy that this teacher is giving a talk again. (laughs) There's something about their tone of voice that they just find grating. They dislike their job. And they do it uh, disgruntled and rapidly. At some point, they may even ask to be switched to another job. They heard about this new walking room over in the um, Karuna house, I think they call it now. But they're not going to go check it out. They're sure it's going to probably smell too new or (laughs) there's be something they won't like about it. On retreat, they tend to see the problems in the environment and want to fix them, including other yogis. (laughs) Sometimes they have trouble. You you may have noticed that on retreat, um, sometimes aversion and desire can become very strong over little things. So what can happen with um, yogis who... uh, perhaps have this temperament, is that um, their aversion will get so strong that they can't contain it. And they will um, gesture to other yogis about things that these yogis should not be doing. They may find ways to get the yogi's attention, being on the walls or something, to um, get them to stop doing something that they don't want them to do. They may write, write notes to other yogis, helpful notes, of course. <laughs> And just so you don't feel too um, self-judgmental if you've done these things, um, my first retreat here, um, I, I was sitting in the hall, and there was a yogi behind me that uh, snored often. And um, I got super aversive, and I couldn't contain myself. I wrote him a note and uh, suggested that perhaps he should nap instead of coming to the sittings, you know, very helpfully. I probably signed it meta, you know. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do what I did. It was bad. (laughs) My teacher, Michelle, is also a self-professed aversive type, and... um, 
she tells this one story that it's just a killer about one night um, when she was meditating here, and it was in December, it was quite cold out, and um, I think she heard a cow mooing off in the field or something, and, and it just drove her nuts. And then there's something about the heating system and the sound, and she couldn't stand it, and she got so aversive that she um, turned off the heat in the annex because <laughs> she couldn't stand the sound of the heating system. And then she forgot that she'd turned it off, and the next morning all the yogis are walking around in the annex and they're like jackets because it's so cold. <laughs> These are the kinds of things aversive types will do <laughs> when they can't hold their aversive energy. So what to do? Um, the task with each one of these personality types is to learn to, one of the main tasks is to learn mindfulness of aversion or desire or confusion. So mindfulness of um, aversion, like turning and meeting that energy and really you have to get really intimate with it. You really have to know it deeply. So often when there's a lot of aversion, the, um, the attention's on the object, and the object is the problem, right? And so um, it's changing the orientation to looking at uh, the aversion rather than trying to fix or control the object. So instead of being focused on, again, controlling the environment or focused on getting rid of the aversion, we learn, need to learn to soften into it. We need to learn to make space for holding unpleasantness. So it's like that learning to make space as our refuge rather than control what's going on out there as our refuge. Trying to control what's going on out there is pretty hard work. It's pretty, um, there isn't a lot of rest there because it's always changing, right? And, uh, and a lot of things we can't control. So. A much better refuge is uh, increasing the spaciousness in our hearts and minds to hold unpleasantness. Aversive types tend to need a lot of softening and a lot of relaxation. They're said to be the hardest type to get along with because there's this rigidity and um, hardness. And so Aversive types need some smoothing out of the rough edges. They need to learn to soften, or we need to learn to soften our habitual defenses and open the heart. So for that reason, for this reason, metta is um, often prescribed for aversion, for aversive types. Originally, the Buddha taught it as an antidote to fear and aversion. So metta uh, can help bring that softening that makes it possible. It, it not only brings softening, it brings some sense of um, a benevolent world. Aversive types tend to see the world um, not so benevolently, <laughs> um, and metta can bring in enough sense of benevolence that one can relax. Relaxation is so important for being able to see the truth of things. So the metta brings in the softening and the relaxation in that way. At one point in my 
fairly early practice, I think it was about eight years in, um, I hadn't done metta. I, I, I didn't like it. <laughs> as, an, as an aversive type, I found it, uh, it seemed maybe a little too Pollyanna-ish or something for me. And um, I never went to the hall when they did the, the Brahma Vihara sittings. And um, about eight years into my practice, I was um, suffering a lot and uh, feeling rather desperate. So I got, my suffering was so clear to me, but there was, uh, I felt kind of stuck. So I went to Joseph and I'm like, what should I do? And Joseph said, do a metta retreat. This was not good news to me. I, I didn't, um, I hadn't felt inclined that way, but I was desperate. So I followed his advice and uh, did a two-month metta retreat here. And it, it transformed my practice. It, it softened it, my heart enough that I could begin to um, hold the kind of deeper suffering that I needed to hold. So really good for aversive types. In the path of purification, there are um, instructions about the suitable place and suitable food, etc., for each type. And one of the reasons I love talking about the types is because us aversive types, we get it like really good because we need it. We need it for the softening. So here's um, from the commentaries. A suitable resting place for one of hating temperament they use here. (laughs) Aversion, hating... A suitable resting place for one of hating temperament is not too high or too low, provided with shade and water, with well-proportioned walls, posts, and steps, with well-prepared frieze work and lattice work, brightened with various kinds of painting, with an even, smooth, soft floor, adorned with festoons of flowers and a canopy of many-colored cloth, (laughs) with bed and chair covered with well-spread, clean, pretty covers, smelling sweetly of flowers and perfumes and scents set about for homely comfort, which makes one happy and glad at the mere sight of it. The right kind of road to his, or we could say her, the right kind of road to his lodging is free from any sort of danger, traverses clean, even ground, and has been properly prepared. And here it is best that the lodging's furnishings are not too many in order to avoid hiding places for insects, bugs, snakes, and rats. Even a single bed and chair only. The right kind of inner and outer garments for him are of any superior stuff, such as china cloth, silk, fine cotton, fine linen, (laughs) quite light and well dyed, quite pure in color. The right kind of bowl is made of iron, um, polished as a gem, spotless. The right kind of road uh, is free of dangers. You know, it goes on and on. Suitable people to serve him are handsome, pleasing, (laughs) well-bathed, (laughs) well-anointed, scented with perfume, (laughs) the right kind of gruel, rice, and hard food has color, smell, and taste, and possesses nutritive essence and is inviting, superior in every way. (laughs) Sounds okay. Now, the idea with all of this uh, pleasantness is to help soften the aversive type. It's to help them um, 
uh, start to tune some to pleasantness. The versive types tend to focus on unpleasantness. So this kind of environment is to bring in some pleasant, which will balance the mind. So it sees that in addition to unpleasantness, there's also pleasantness in this world. And, and again, to help with the relaxation. Just wait till we get the greed types. <laughs> they don't get it so good. <laughs> Definitely a sense of humor is really important for the versive types because they can tend to be a bit on the serious side. So lightening up, finding the humor is really helpful. Open awareness practice is said to be good for aversive types because of the spaciousness, but the breath is also a good... Um, the breath is good for all of them, the breath, breath awareness uh, Lying down posture can be helpful for aversive types to um, bring in ease. Of course, we're not going to let you do that in the hall. But there is a sense of like with lying down, I'm not suggesting that you lie down all day, but there's a way you can notice when you're maybe lying down at night or lying down for a nap that there's a sense of relaxation that we feel that um, can be really helpful to attune us to a sense of ease in our practice. Something else I've noticed with the three types is that equanimity. So equanimity is a beautiful um, mind state that we that we cultivate in um, meditation. It's it's one of the highest um, kinds of happiness, according to the Buddha, in this in this reality, this conditioned reality. I think Spring's going to do a whole talk about it in a couple of days. Um, but what I've noticed is that equanimity is experienced differently by these three types. So most of you know a little bit about what equanimity is. It's the, it's, you could say it's the mind or heart that's at peace, that's non-reactive, that's able to meet uh, this changing world with balance and grace and poise. So for aversive types, when we first start to experience equanimity, we think we are in heaven. We are so happy like to have a break from our aversive minds Wow, really nice. So it's, it's experienced as a um, huge relief. So the evolved type for um, the aversive type is d- uh, the discriminating wisdom type. So there's a way that um, aversive types have a kind of sharp mind. And you can turn that sharp mind towards uh, really, um, you could say, piercing through delusion and seeing things as the way they are. So there's a way that we can harness it, the energy of the aversive mind to um, really develop wisdom, to cut through delusion. There's a kind of sword-like quality in the mind of, of um, aversive types. So that's the positive side that um, tend to be, um, you could say, tend towards developing wisdom easily. I was thinking about each type a little bit, and I was thinking about our cats. And um, I think animals are supposedly all of the deluded type, like they're in a confused realm is what I think I remember from the cosmology. But they seem to have personality types too to me. And so we have these two cats, and um, they were 
they were um, feral kitties from here. Their mother had the babies in the garage here, and um, so we took them. And the girl, uh, uh, Pearl, is uh, she seems like a fear type, an aversive type. So she, um, she, you have to work really hard to like even get her to let you be near her. And she runs from things, and she's scared of everything. And um, so she seems, and, and I've watched her over the years. I think we've had her like seven years now. And every year she makes just a little bit of progress, like in um, relaxing. So she's working it. And then, <laughs> and then the other one, a Pearl, I mean, not Pearl, Sparky, he's a total greed type. So like he just, um, he knows what he wants and he's going to let sure, make sure that you know it too. And he's, he's a love, you know, he loves to come up and get petted a lot, but he, you know, sometimes he's a little noxious about it, you know, and when he wants his food, he lets you know. And, and uh, he hasn't made much progress. <laughs> <laughs> He's been that way, and he's even more that way, maybe. <laughs> and then I was thinking, before we had these two cats, we had um, we had a feral cat from here. I just we just took them, you know, that something needed a home. So there was one from here, and she was a little older. She was like six months old, and um, we called her La Ferosa, which means the ferocious one in um, Spanish. Uh, so La Ferosa or Lala. Um, she sure, she sure seemed like an aversive type, but I think it might have been her environment. So sometimes when people are raised in a certain environment, it can be confusing which type they are because of um, what you learn responding to your environment. So she was a feral cat, and she um, probably just learned a lot of fierceness and fear. And, uh, and then one time we went away, and uh, um, so we, we, we bought a little door for the garage and put the food in there for her and everything. We spent a lot of money on Lala. And then we came back and she was gone. We didn't know what happened to her. We were a little worried about her. And then three months later, our neighbors across the street said that they had a new cat living in their wood pile named Slurpee. <laughs> <laughs> and it was La Ferosa. She had moved across the street and was now called Slurpee. Um, I think she was kind of a deluded type. But anyway, that was an aside. It's just the transformation from Las Ferosa to Slurpee. It almost seemed kind of undignified. At least La Ferosa has some dignity to it. Slurpee? Anyway, she's lived there for years now. She's happy over there. <laughs> So let's move on to the um, desire types. Sometimes they like to call themselves the sensuous types. Um, lots of desires, so prominent uh, mind states of craving, discontent, lust, vanity, wanting. And their first answer when something new comes along is yes, they're, they're ready. Um, so they tend to be drawn to new things and they tend to be overly optimistic in their assessment of things or experiences, capacity to make them happy. So they want lots of beautiful things, lots of experiences. They, they are the people who seem like they're having a lot of fun. They, look, they, they notice the pleasantness and they tend to not notice the unpleasantness so much. 
So here at IMS, they would come into the hall. They would um, probably bring with them a really nice cushion that they bought uh, somewhere with a nice matching supporting um, cushions. And they would know which is the best spot to sit in to see well. And they would put their stuff down really nicely and arrange it really well. And they would sit very confidently, walk into the hall very gracefully, well-dressed, um, they would be glad to see that their favorite teacher is talking tonight. <laughs> they would look forward to their yogi job. It's such a great time to connect with the community. Um, <laughs> they like chopping the vegetables with everybody else, and they like to chop them so that they look really nice, really neat. <laughs> they heard about this uh, new walking room, and they just can't wait to check it out. It'll be really fun. And then sometimes they do like to offer helpful suggestions about how things could be, you know, even nicer here. And they definitely write notes to the kitchen thanking them for the really good lunch that we had. <laughs> and I was thinking about their version of the, of the, um, the, uh, the advice to other yogis. And... Um, a number of years ago here during the three-month course especially, we used to have window wars. So we would have the windows open a little bit for ventilation, and um, there would be like wars on like how much the windows should be open. So people had what they wanted as far as ventilation, and people would push the windows up, people would push the windows down. We'd get notes. We'd be mediating disputes about the windows so finally after and I think you know that may be the the greed types you know wanting like it to be the way they like it and um, finally we instituted this one policy this is how the windows are going to be and now we have actually an air circulation system so they're closed but those were the days the um, window war days so what helps the um, desire types uh, renunciation and simplicity, really helpful. So let's read about what they, where they are, should do their practice. I love this. A suitable lodging for one of a greedy temperament has an unwashed sill and stands level with the ground. It can be either an overhanging rock with an unprepared drip ledge, <laughs> a grass hut, or a leaf house, etc. It ought to be spattered with dirt, <laughs> full of bats, <laughs> dilapidated, dilapidated, too high or too low, in bleak surroundings, threatened by lions and tigers, <laughs> with a muddy, uneven path, where even the bed and chair are full of bugs. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't make you do it. It should be ugly and unsightly. Exciting loathing as soon as looked at. Sooner Suitable inner and outer garments are those that have torn edges with threads hanging down all around. Harsh to the touch like hemp. Soiled, heavy, and hard to wear. And the right kind of bowl for him is an ugly clay bowl disfigured by stoppings and joints or a heavy and misshapen iron bowl as unappetizing as a skull. <laughs> the right kind of road for him is disagreeable, uneven, 
the right kind of village for him in which, so a lot of this is talking about monks and going for alms. The right kind of village for him to wander for alms is where people wander about as if oblivious of him. Whereas he is about to prepare to leave without getting alms from even a single family, people call him into the sitting hall saying, come, venerable sir, and give him gruel and rice, but do so as casually as if they were putting a cow in the pen. <laughs> Suitable people to serve him are workmen who are unsightly, ill-favored, with dirty clothes, ill-smelling, <laughs> who serve his rice and gruel as if they were throwing it rudely at him. Anyway, it goes on and on. The right kind of food is unsightly, poor, stale, a curry of old vegetables, or anything at all that is merely for merely fulfilling the stomach. Well, why? That sounds a bit intense, no? So why why is this uh, prescribed for the um, the greedy types? The idea is um, to have somewhat stark surroundings, perhaps, in order to support becoming disenchanted with sense pleasures as the path for happiness. So um, the desire types tend to, yes, be looking and looking for sense pleasure, you know, to, to satisfy. And so the um, not having anything around that, that is attractive is meant to help break, you could say, break that habit. One teacher friend of mine who's a self-professed greed type was talking about one time when she was practicing in Burma, and she was in a room that was very stark. There was like almost nothing in the room. And she said, oh, it's such a relief for my mind that there was nothing in there that I wanted. And so not being of the primary temperament of greed, I, I couldn't totally understand what she meant. I was like, hmm, I thought about it for a long time because I was intrigued about it by her saying that. And then a while ago, um, I was teaching a retreat in Ohio. And um, OK, we're going back to chocolate. Sorry. Um, this is where I noticed craving. So um, they had chocolate chip cookies for lunch. and. Uh, I, I do like chocolate chip cookies about as much as I like dark chocolate-covered almonds. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to take one cookie, right? And I was in another room away from the dining room, so I took this cookie, and I was eating it. And um, somewhere probably around the middle is my guess, I started wanting a second cookie. And I had the thought in my mind, this thought went through my mind, you know what? It would have been better not to start. You know, it would have been better not to have any cookies at all because the craving was strong, and then I had to deal with it. Like, I had this cookie, and because I'd gotten the whole thing going, I had to deal with the craving. So then I could kind of understand what she meant. Like, if if you don't have the first cookie there, if you don't have um, things there that you want, then uh, there can be a relief there. Another good practice, or a good practice... um, well, first of all, learning to look at wanting itself. So like the aversive types turn towards craving, learn how to work with that energy, hold that energy. The um, desire types learn to turn towards wanting. So it's, again, to take the attention off the object wanted, which is um, seductive in its pleasantness, right? To take the attention off that and to take it back and actually settle with the wanting itself. 
So, so um, desire types are working um, with desire in any, for anybody. We have to start to see the drawbacks in pleasant objects. The main drawback being that they don't last, right? That little fact that we want to overlook. <laughs> um, so a good practice or good contemplation for greed types is impermanence, seeing the ending of things seeing that sense objects or sense pleasures are impermanent. And related to that, good contemplations are old age, sickness, and death. Those heavenly reminders of all forms of impermanence. In the commentaries, uh, the meditation that was mentioned one time in the hall here, the 32 parts of the body is sometimes... Um, prescribed for folks with um, lots of wanting. Uh, so it's a, way, it's a meditation that goes through and contemplates like all the different parts of the body, and it's meant to counteract lust or counteract craving for the physical form. Um, again, it kind of encourages disenchantment. And again, it's not a common meditation here in the West, I think that was mentioned, because um, it has to be done in a really balanced way. I think the Buddha didn't tend to assign it to lay people either, especially married ones or ones in a relationship. Not so helpful there, maybe. <laughs> so for um, desire types, when they're first getting in touch with equanimity, that balanced mind, um, non-reactive mind and heart, I've heard some folks say that it actually seems a little boring at first. So boring is often their doorway in to, boredom is often their doorway into equanimity. It seems like something's missing. You know, the question they can ask themselves is like, where's the fun here? Where's the excitement here? <laughs> so it's like an acquired taste. Equanimity is an acquired taste for, um, for the greed types. They have to really, um, you know, see the drawbacks and the constant search for pleasant sense objects. And then, like, get like acclimate to the acclimate to the greater pleasure of peace of mind. Most of us here believe that the Buddha was a greed type, so you are in good company if you are a greed type. So, evolved the greed. Um, a type evolved turns into devotion and faith. And whereas um, the desire or the greed towards sense objects, or you know, when the, the greed type or desire type looks for sense objects, you know, devotes their uh, energy to sense objects, um, the faith type, when it's evolved into the faith type, uh, the energy is put towards things that are worthy of our energy and attention, like the Dhamma practice. So that wanting energy is put into wanting what is wholesome. And this devotion and this faith that develop in that way is, is so beautiful. It's a beautiful quality, right, that can guide us skillfully to deeper and deeper wisdom. So putting that wanting energy in a, in a wholesome and helpful place. Where, where it manifests as faith and devotion. 
So on to the confused type. The confused type, the um, predominant states are sloth and torpor, agitation, worry, uncertainty, stubbornness, and doubt. So there's a little bit of a sense with the confused types of being disconnected. There's lots of confusion and speculation, lots of um, thinking and uh, trying to figure things out, but being unsure, not sure what they're looking for. Indecision, confusion. And um, the texts say lots of restlessness due to perplexity. They tend to have a spaciousness that makes them easy to get along with. They tend to be the easiest type to get along with. But sometimes that spaciousness can morph into a kind of disconnect and and a scatteredness of attention. They're often easily influenced by others and can change change their mind often. I've heard um, confused types say sometimes that they're afraid that they're stupid. But don't worry, that's not true. Sharon Salzberg is a self-proclaimed, deluded, or confused type, very intelligent woman. And um, I actually believe Obama might be a um, confused type. (laughs) I didn't mean that to be funny, but okay. (laughs) I meant it because of his equanimity, his easygoingness. So I used to think that, like, for me, I used to think, oh, us aversive types, we are the most painful type. That's why we need all that nice stuff, right? But I've, over the years, really come to appreciate the pain in um, being a confused type because there's this sense of, like, you don't know where you can land. So there's a, a groundlessness, not in the positive sense of the word, but in um, a homelessness or something, you could call it. So how would a um, confused type be here? They would come in the hall hesitantly. They would take a long time to decide which cushion or place to take, and they would probably change a number of times during the retreat. Would walk with hesitant steps. When they um, hear new instructions in the hall, they're not sure if they should try them. They think maybe they should, and they aren't sure which one is best for them. And then later they can't even remember the instructions. They're not sure how to sit, so they copy what other people are doing. They wonder if it would have been better to skip the talk tonight, maybe, and go to bed early, get some extra sleep. In their kitchen yogi job, they forget the order of cleanup afterwards. It's like it's supposed to be done in a certain way, and they're not sure which way it is. And then they wonder if maybe they should be doing another job, that they're not good enough at this one, and they should do another one. They hear about the new walking room, but they can't find it. So the challenge for the um, confused types, the first challenge is just like arriving, finding a way to connect, to really connect with here, now, being here. Um, So simplicity can be very useful, and a very body-oriented practice can be very useful because it's grounded. 
confused types get lost in the speculation and the perplexity in the mind. And so, they, so to, to, to pull away from that, uh, that um, confusion and come into something concrete, the body, walking meditation, breath meditation, is really helpful. They also get very pleasant abidings. They get the same um, instructions as the subversive types um, so that they can, to help them connect, to help them arrive here. They also, in addition to everything else that's written for the aversive types, they get um, a good view, a spacious view. They're not supposed to be closed in. So the thing with, um, for, aver- for confused types is they often think, the same as the other two types, that, the, that they have to get rid of their confusion. Like it's got to go. <laughs> but actually, their confusion, the confusion can be your, your um, meditation object. So often confusion comes up and a confused type will, they'll try to think their way out of confusion and get more and more confused doing so. So the alternative is to turn towards and say, oh, confusion feels like this. This is how confusion manifests. This is how it manifests in the mind. This is how it manifests in the body. And to actually take it on as a meditation object. So to do that, you have to actually be willing to give up trying to figure it out. And that's hard to do, but that's the task for the confused type, is to let go of trying to figure it out and to come back to something very simple right in the present moment. So confused types really need to be especially on the lookout for the hindrance of doubt because it's a big one for confused types. Have to know, like, try to catch it early. If you don't catch doubt early, right, it just, wow, it can take you for a few-hour trip or even longer. It can kind of ensnare you. Um, So you have to know how it um, manifests for you and keep a lookout for it. The other day I was giving a workshop for the um, staff and one person was talking about a certain, um, uh, he was talking about the kind of the certain mind states that he gets ensnarled in and he called them Mara's arguments and he had a whole list of Mara's arguments and I, I liked that, you know. So you could have your list of um, Mara's arguments for doubt. So what does Mara tell you that really leads you to a doubt spiral? You're not good enough or... Um, uh, you can't do this practice or um, whatever the manifestation for you is. Uh, get to know it. Know what the list is. And then when you see it, it's like, oh, doubt, I see you. Mara, I see you. This is doubt. For um, confused types, noting can be very helpful because it brings in that precision and clarity that can really help um, increase one's trust in knowing what's going on. It's like confused types don't trust that they actually know what's going on, and so the noting can help bring in uh, that clarity that will develop that kind of trust. And for, for confused types, that kind of trust is it's, it's heaven. It's, it's beautiful. It's like, oh, okay, I have a place to land. I know how to land. 
So equanimity and the confused type. The confused type seems equanimous, and there is a way that they have a certain spaciousness, but some of the equanimity can come from the disconnect. And so what I sometimes hear from confused types as their practice deepens is they start to notice more aversion and more wanting, and they feel like they're going backwards. But actually what they're doing is arriving and really seeing what's going on. So it's a positive step, even if it doesn't feel great. And what happens over time is that that, um, that being able to connect with uh, reality, you could say, or connect con- concretely, develops um, a kind of clarity that leads to true equanimity, to a rooted equanimity. I read somebody use that word, a rooted equanimity which is the evolved type of the um, confused type. Rooted equanimity, non-confusion, clarity, balance, spaciousness, but spaciousness with clarity. Also really all beautiful qualities. So the primary task of coming back and learning how to connect, how to arrive, develops this kind of true equanimity and true balance. So sometimes it's tempting. Um, Oh, by the way, if you haven't figured out which type you are yet, you're a confused type. So we'll just keep that simple. Really, the aversive and the, and the um, desire types, they, they know pretty quickly. They're like, yeah, that's me. And the confused type goes, huh, well, you know, I see that I have some aversion and, and then I have some desire, so I could be one of those two types, but then maybe, no, I probably the confused type could be, I don't know. <laughs> so if, if you've been like going through this during the whole talk, like, which type am I? You're the confused type. So. It can be tempting to diagnose family and friends. Um, (laughs) So I'd like to caution you against spending a lot of time doing that in the next day or two. Just just diagnose yourself and um, use whatever is helpful in what I said um, for your practice. Um, You don't have to go find some bats for your room or anything like that. But, um, (laughs) you know, the general, the idea for example, with the desire types of some sense restraint and uh, some simplicity. Um, it can be helpful. The truth of the matter is that sometimes it can be helpful to know what type our loved ones are. Um, not to put them in a box, but to help increase our tolerance and our patience and our understanding of differences. So that would be one reason in the future, perhaps, to do that. Um, it's like learning to hold. When we go through our own challenges and our own personality type or temperament, we, we hopefully develop some compassion for ourselves. I haven't mentioned that, but definitely that should be part of the um, surge. Is, uh, yeah, to hold it all with kindness, right? So hopefully if, if, if we do um, think of our family and friends in that way, again, it would be to uh, hold them with kindness. For example, a while ago I was with a friend and we were driving to this place, uh, this tea place in upper New York and 
she was driving kind of slow and really carefully and thinking a lot about decisions. And us aversive types, we tend towards impatience and speed, right? And then I remembered, oh yeah, oh yeah, she's a confused type and that's how they do things. They, they do things more slowly, methodically, and it's like it helped me to not be impatient. It helped me to just relax, let her be her. She was driving. And uh, so that kind of understanding can sometimes come. So the last thing I think I will do, I there's two stories, which one? Let's do this one. Having a sense of humor around our type, really helpful. And this is a story for Pema children. I think I might have read it last year for those of you who've been here. It's my, one of my current favorites. So it's about this Tibetan yogi named Geshe Ben. Whenever this eccentric fellow saw him, there's a lot of stories about him. I don't know, think he's a real person, but maybe he is. Whenever this eccentric fellow saw in himself any kindness or wisdom, he referred to himself as Venerable Geshe. When he saw himself getting hooked by attachment, by craving, he addressed himself as You Fool. Once when he was visiting some patrons, Geshe Ben saw an open bag of barley flour hanging on the wall. He needed some flour, and when he was left alone, he unconsciously started dipping in. So this is a greed type here. Suddenly, realizing what he was doing, he screamed at the top of his lungs, Thief, thief, I've caught a thief. When his host rushed in, there he was with his hand in the bag. Another time, the patrons invited all the monks for a meal. Geshe Ben was seated last. As the servers were doling out his favorite yogurt, he began to panic. What if there's none left for me? How can that big monk take such a huge helping? As feelings of resentment grew, he began to connive how he could move ahead of the other monks before it was too late. Then he realized with remorse what he was doing and patiently waited his turn. When they finally got to him, he put his hand over his bowl and yelled, No yogurt for this greedy fellow. This yogurt addict has already had enough. So what I love about that story is the lightness, right? The lightness with his challenges and not taking them too seriously. So that's what I recommend with the aversion, the desire, and the confusion. Take them lightly. Work with them, of course. Work with them in the way that's most skillful. But remember not to take them too personally, not to judge yourself for their presence. and develop lightness of heart. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.